Alrighty. Well, we have a lot to cover. And uh, I work in a creative access country, so my name's Kathy. Okay, that's about as far as I'm going to go. And uh, welcome to everybody. I would first like to get to know a little bit who my audience is. How many of you have ever worked in a complex humanitarian emergency? Okay, fantastic. How many of you have a desire to work in such a situation? Long term? Any long-termers? A few. The hands get slower, smaller and smaller. Okay. <laughs> well, um, my husband and I worked uh, in uh, such a situation, and I'm going to go through a little bit about that. But first, let's get started. I'm happy to share with you something that's near and dear to my heart. I think we're going to see more and more complex humanitarian emergencies as the return of Christ gets closer and closer. I have nothing to disclose we're going to briefly go through these. We're going to define what a complex emergency is. Probably a lot of you already know their, to their, what extent they are in the world and what kind of people they affect. What are the common causes of morbidity and mortality that you're going to see in such a situation? We'll talk a lot about the mental health issues because that's getting to be more and more of a big subject in these situations. And then I'm going to turn it to the providers. So a lot of times we always talk about how to take care of people, but we forget we're going to be in need as well because of some of the things that we're going to be seeing and where we're in such a situation. Just to give you a background about me, I first started in Kurdistan back before some of you were born. <laughs> I moved there in 1991 and uh, started working with the Kurdish refugees first on the border between Turkey and Iraq and then in northern Iraq for three years. I also did uh, three months in Bosnia after the war came to an end, resettling Croat in, er, refugees in the Serbian-held territory, and then in Afghanistan for a month doing in health outreach, and that's where I quickly learned that it's not a good place for a single woman. And then Chad for three months working with some of the Darfurian refugees, and then South Sudan where I spent the majority of my time. My husband and I were there for about 11 years, and we saw everything in the book that you can see when it comes to a complex humanitarian emergency. We're currently in the Middle East, and I don't see any of that. However, there are a few refugees in our area from other countries, but there's no really complex humanitarian emergency going on in the area where I live. Up in the north of the region where I live, there are some refugee encampments. So let's get started. What is a CHE? I'm going to refer to complex humanitarian emergency as CHE from now on. It's short, easy to say. But it's an event or series of events that represents a critical threat to the health, safety, security, or well-being of a community or large group of people over a wider area. This is the official a UN definition here is long and everything. I shortened it for you, but it's just a big problem where the government itself cannot take care of it anymore, whether it's due to a natural disaster or due to some type of conflict or war. Okay? Some of the most common causes and then the effects of the, the chase are political arrest. We're seeing that right now in the Ukraine, right? We've seen it in Syria. We've seen it in Iraq. Uh, environmental causes. There are so many natural disasters going on, and it's getting worse and worse as time goes on. Some people say it's, it's climate change. Uh, all I know is that all the things that Christ told us about in the Bible are, we're starting to see happening. And um, healthcare emergencies. Obviously, in any broken down situation, healthcare is going to be one of the first things that's going to be affected. And every type of emergency, conflict, Complex humanitarian emergency I've been involved in, the health of the people, they didn't know where to go or how to get the help they needed. Population displacement. We often think of refugees, but we forget the number of IDPs that are in, often involved in these as well. And then if, if this CHE is going on for a while and they don't have their <clears throat> local support system they're used to, hunger is a big problem, malnutrition, and that could even come as a result of drought. Right now in northeast Kenya, it's horrible. People as well as animals are dying. It's like the fourth year of drought there. And not only on top of that, there's a huge locust, 
locust infestation in Ethiopia. So it's East Africa is really being hit hard. And then all of this leads just to the lack of just really basic services that they were used to getting before this emergency happened. Just to give you a little picture of what's going on in our world, for some of you who've only been watching political news lately in your local uh, part of your world because of the voting going on, let's look at what's happening in the world, though. Right now, there are wars in much of the world. Look at Africa. Look at Africa. Okay, Ukraine, I, can, I understand that. That's, that's a big, huge mess. Mexico, Chiapas region, we never really hear about that, do we? And then you have other parts of the world like Venezuela and so on. But let's not also forget natural disasters. I didn't have a picture of where natural disasters are happening, but there are so many of them. In fact, in 2021 alone, there were 432 natural disasters. Just And, it, and overall, these accounted for over 10,400 deaths, affected 100.8 million people, and caused approximately 252 billion dollars of economic losses. So natural disasters is, along with war, we often think of war, but natural disasters is a big problem. And internally displaced peoples. We really worked a lot with IDPs in the area where we were in South Sudan. But you can see here, 33 million people right now are displaced from their homes. The places where they're used to living, where they have their support group, where they have everything that they, they knew of to, to have a normal life is now gone because they're living in an area, maybe their same country. Did you know if you're an internally displaced person, you don't get the same services as a refugee does? You don't get a card from the World Food Program saying that you can get food. You can't go to the clinics and so on and so forth. It's, it's a big problem. In fact, you can see here the top five countries. I was surprised by this graph with the most internal displaces, the displacements as of last year. China, number one. China. And you know why? The natural disasters that are there are astounding. Then the Philippines, again, natural disasters, typhoons and so on. Ethiopia, there's a war going on right now, a war you hardly ever hear about. India, again, natural disasters as well as other conflicts. And then the DR of uh, Congo, big problem. That's been a long, ongoing war. And not only that, Ebola and polio and other problems going in the DR of Congo. So... All of this leads to a lot of health problems. So when we finally end up going to one of these places, we've got to start now saying, okay, what are the things that I should be looking for? What are the things I should be concerned with? Why? Because any type of gains that these people had in their country before, such as getting the good care they needed for their chronic diseases or maybe being on schedule for their vaccinations, um, being you know, around uh, the food sources and all that, a lot of that's lost. The vaccinations just stop. So we don't have any more of the, uh, the treatment that they needed. And then the water. If you don't have good, clean sources of water, what's going to happen? A lot of diarrhea and other problems, which I'll talk about later. And then, like I said, the food sources are, are lost because... A lot of these places, it's, it's changing now. The whole scene is changing. It used to be a lot of very poor countries that are affected by this, and they were subsistence farmers. So you can imagine when they had some type of a war going on, their whole food source was just stopped. But now we're seeing big nations like Syria, like Ukraine. They're not subsistence farmers. However, as we know from President Joe Biden, we don't have oil anymore because of the Ukraine war. Well, that's what he says. But anyway, <laughs> let's go on and talk about something else, such as the main causes of why people die in these diseases. And they have really come down to four major causes. And every research that you look at will always point to acute lower respiratory tract infection, diarrhea, measles, and malaria. These are why a lot of children die as long with the elderly. So you always got to keep that first and foremost in your differential diagnosis to keep these people from dying, okay? And now we'll talk about the morbidity, the most common morbidities that you're going to see in these emergencies. You might as well face it. You're probably going to get diarrhea along with all the patients that you're going to be dealing with. I mean, 
Carry your Pepto-Bismol, get your Cipro around, get your Metronidazole, your Tenidazole. I don't know how many times I had it and, and how many times I've been so, so sick in Iraq and Sudan, Sudan, all of those places I served. A lot of it's due to overcrowding, contamination of water and food, and then your lack of hygiene. It just happens. I worked in a refugee camp, like I said, in, in Turkey. Never in my world that I would ever, ever think I would get brucellosis, ever. But I was eating local food, and one of them was unpasteurized cheese. I was super sick. It's a great diet program, I'll tell you. Really great. I lost 25 pounds in six weeks. So we, oh, we also can't forget that there's cholera, there's hepatitis E, there's leptospirosis uh, and stuff like that. But measles is a big, big problem. And I don't know about how many people are you, are any of you working in the States and seeing measles? I mean, there's making a resurgence of, of measles, polio even. But measles is a killer of kids. And because of the anti-vax propaganda going on, kids are not getting vaccinated anymore. They get measles. It's a good way to die. But here in a refugee camp, can you imagine, or an IDD displacement camp, how quickly that spreads? because they're overcrowded and they probably never even had vaccine coverage before. The whole time I was in Sudan, I, we didn't have one measles, one measles program. It was always polio and it was polio and polio and polio. Um, that, that was about all what they gave, polio. And so when you have measles going and it kills kids fast. Right now, because of that, they're saying instead of stopping the measles vaccination at the age of five, go on up to the age of 15. Because these are most likely, these, these children have never been vaccinated or they're so far behind they need to be vaccinated, okay? Acute respiratory tract infection, extremely, extremely common, again, due to poor housing. Okay, can you running away from a war or a natural disaster? Do you just pack your, your suitcase and go with every clothing you think you might need? No. These kids go with the clothes on their back, and that's it. I've seen the same kids in the refugee camp wearing the same dirty T-shirt with no underwear, nothing else. Getting over the, over the five years we were in that area, they often wore the same clothes that were just torn in tatters. And then there's smoke in the living area. Why? Because they go out into the outside area. They cut down every tree or bush or whatever they can get and cook on that because there's no other way to cook. So when they're often, because it rains heavily in some of these areas, they cook inside. So you can imagine what they're exposed to, all the smoke, which again leads to respiratory infections. And let's not forget malaria. Malaria is still one of the world's biggest killers. And uh, these people who are fleeing, maybe uh, they're IDPs or refugees, they, maybe, they grew up with one strain of the malaria. Now they're going into an area maybe where there's a whole completely different strain, and they're being bitten repeatedly. They have no immunity. They are sick. And P. falciparum malaria kills people. My kids came into the clinic with a 104-degree temperature seizing and some of them end up with permanent brain damage as a result. And we saw multitudes die. It's a terrible, terrible disease. And, of course, in these, a lot of these regions, there's a lot of stagnant water, which is going to just be a breeding ground for these things. To give you a picture of malaria deaths worldwide, in, two, in 2020, there were an estimated 241 million cases of malaria worldwide. And the number of deaths, 627,000. We were really, I know COVID killed a lot, but this is an annual thing that's going on. It's not just a two-year pandemic. This is happening every year in these countries. We have to understand that Africa holds disproportionately the burden of this horrible disease. I'm not going to go through a lot of these things. There are other communicable diseases that you've got to think about. The first time I ever came in contact with Hep E, how many of you have ever treated anybody for Hepatitis E? We had an outbreak in the camp in Sudan. Hepatitis E, for some reason, when it attacks a pregnant woman, it will be almost certain death, which means you're not losing just one person, you're losing two. And it spread through our camps. It was, it was really bad. Another thing that we often forget is STDs and HIV. 
They're often on the rise because the increase of gender-based violence in a place where people have no longer have a support system, it's gone. These women are vulnerable. Many women and children have fled and are on their own. Their husband's either dead because he was killed in the war, or he's still late back there in their home country fighting. So they're on their own, and, it, and often they are raped or um, hurt other ways. Malnutrition, uh, something near and dear to my heart, something that I never saw until I was working in, F in, um, in Kurdistan. And all of a sudden, when the Kurds returned and Saddam Hussein was no longer subsidizing their food or their gas, they used to pay 10 cents a gallon for gas. When Saddam Hussein stopped subsidizing them, it went up to a dollar. Food went up four or five times the cost because he was subsidizing everything to keep them happy. I had to teach doctors about malnutrition. They'd never seen it before either except for in a book. Sudan, rampant, rampant. Whether you're in a complex humanitarian emergency or just in the village with the people, it's rampant because it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And they're going to have a lot more morbidity and mortality if they're malnourished at the same time as they get measles, diarrheal disease, respiratory infections, malaria, HIV, and TB. You can just imagine how it's just going to affect them worse and worse. How many of you know what this kid in this picture has? Yep. Yeah, what about the sister next to him? Yep. Kwashiorkor mimics obesity. Marasmus, easy to see. You can see how skinny her little arm is. Don't forget Kwashiorkor can cause a lot of swelling and it makes the child look fat and healthy and even the parents won't understand that. Know about malnutrition and how to treat it before you go. Physical injuries. I never in my life, I worked in Ahmed for a short while and I've seen cut fingers and saw, you know, injuries and all this stuff. I never thought I would treat anybody for gunshot wounds, shrapnel wounds, amputations. You can see two of my friends here. There, one guy lost his hand because of a bullet wound. The other guy lost his whole arm, and I made a prosthesis for them out of uh, socks, <laughs> long socks and, and tubing and, and gloves. But they were so self-conscious about not having their hands and everything. They were unusable. I was really thrilled about what they have downstairs. Have you guys in the exhibit hall seen those hands? Take some with you if you're going to go work in some of this. It's really great, but get ready to understand wound care before you go as well. Okay, this is really cool. I just found this today, training in assistive products. In fact, we tried to find any ways we could to get people um, up and moving like, and, or, or doing life as much as naturally as possible. You can get good online training for free. Um, this is on the WHO website. I put the the URL there if you want to learn about how you can help people get on crutches, how to get them to be able to use any kind of assistive device that you might have access to. All right, now let's learn, move to something else. Gender-based violence, big problem. Much of you probably heard about it for the first time with the Yezidi women, right? What happened with the Yezidi women in Iraq? Much, 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 much horrible things, but in South Sudan, some of the worst cases of gender-based violence ever, 65% of the women there suffered it, 65%, and it's double the global rate. In any type of an of a emergency setting, this type of violence soars. You need to have on your radar, if women especially are coming in with a lot of somatic complaints and you can't find the reason for it, Try to figure it out because there's so much shame with all of this. They are very much afraid to talk about it for fear of reprisal if they're being beaten by their husband or partner or if they've been raped. And But you have to be able to develop a relationship with them where they trust you to talk about this. And we used in our clinic in South Sudan chaplains. And chaplains who spoke their language were part of their culture to be able to so they could share freely so we could get them the help that they needed. But we can't forget that men as well can be affected, okay? Beaten or raped, sodomized, uh, it, it happens. And so it's, it is a rampant problem, and we need to be testing for STDs. We need to have 
prophylactic medicines for HIV on hand in case they were raped. So, and yourself as well. I'm sorry, but you're not immune to these things. You're in a situation that's very chaotic and something can happen to you, so get yourself ready, which I'll talk a little bit more about this. Now we'll turn on to something happy, which is maternal health. It can be really happy. However, it can also be very difficult in any of an emergency setting. One of the first things to go is the sexual and reproductive health needs of women. This is a picture here of TBAs that I worked with that we trained in our clinic. South Sudan had a mandate that we're supposed to have nurses and midwives only. Do you know how many women have gone to school? Do you know how many schools they have in South Sudan? Do you know how many women are nurses? So we probably might have a handful. And do you know where they live? In the capital in Juba, not up in the outer villages where all these emergencies are going on. So we had to break the law and train TBAs, and we worked very closely with them. They brought their patients into our clinic. If they couldn't get into the clinic soon enough to birth, they burned them there in the village because they were very, very well trained. The UNFPA uh, believes that we really should keep this at the forefront of any type of emergency because it's the common cause of death for many women in these situations. And if it's not death, it's ill health. Lord, think about fistulas. How many of you heard about the fistula problem in Ethiopia? I mean, it's just horrendous. They're not getting the proper birthing care that they need. 61% of the maternal deaths occur in countries where there is an emergency going on. That's a lot. And over 500 women die in pregnancy. 500 every day in these in any type of humanitarian setting like this. This is unacceptable. Because it's really not just 500 women, is it? Sometimes the child also dies. These are the six objectives of the minimum initial service package for sexual and reproductive health in any crisis situation that the UNFPA says. But I'm going to break it down basic for you. They talk about a lead agency and all this kind of stuff. But if you're in there, this is what we did when we were in South Sudan. Provide as much family planning contraceptives that you can. We had condoms and we had Depo-Provera. Condoms, very, very low uptake because the men just wanted nothing to do with them. But Depo-Provera, they, they were fine with that. So pregnancy care. We provided antenatal care and our antenatal program was Busy, super, super busy. They loved coming to our clinic. They loved hearing the, the heartbeat of the baby with the fetal monitor and everything. It was fantastic. Childbirth care. Any family med doctors who are trained in doing um, a hysterectomy, wow. I mean, this is why a lot of women die. They cannot birth, and we don't have trained personnel. to. Uh, midwives can't do hysterectomies, but family med docs can as well as OB-GYNs. However, there's more talk about training these people, such as midwives and nurses, in doing hysterectomies, which I think is a good idea in a low-resource setting. And then you have to also consider HIV care, which we always did, and STD care. Non-communicable diseases is getting to be more and more of a problem. Because when we used to think about complex humanitarian emergencies, we think about all the communicable diseases, right? The ones that I talked about at the beginning, all of the diarrheas and all that kind of stuff. But now, where are these emergencies hitting? Urban settings, right? Urban settings. And so now we've got to start changing the way that we think because, as we all know, the four main non-communicable diseases, which I'll call NCDs from now on, are cardiovascular diseases, cancers, diabetes, and chronic lung diseases, okay? And they're often overlooked immediately following any kind of an emergency. And they're very vulnerable during this time because some of them left home without any of their chronic meds. And then you saw that picture of that guy holding up the picture. They had no insulin. In Sudan, I had no access to insulin whatsoever. We didn't have refrigeration. It was so hard for me to see my diabetic patients get sicker and sicker and sicker because no longer the small little glyburides and the metformins were no longer working. They really needed to be on insulin. 
and we didn't have access to Glargan. You just don't have access to that stuff. So it's hard, but you do what you can do. And then it can worsen, obviously, without their meds. Sometimes they don't even, the facilities aren't in any way prepared to help them or they can't even get to them. Like we have an area in South Sudan where we were working that was completely cut off from the clinic during the rainy season because there was a big raging river. They couldn't even get across to us if they wanted, and there was no other health care available. That was another reason why TBAs in our program, trained birth attendants, were extremely important. So, and then... Let's, think, let's just be honest. My people that I worked with were community health workers. Many of them never even had a high school education, or if they did, two years. They're not, they don't understand chronic disease management. But I tell you, by the time they were done being trained by me and my other staff, they were the best PAs and NPs I've ever seen in my life. And they were great. They, they understood it. They got it. Train your people. You shouldn't go there to be the doc. Go there more and more. To the more the setting turns into normalizing, begin training. Training as much as you can. If you don't understand this type of management yourself, download this book. It's excellent. Again, it's free from the World Health Organization. We have to start thinking of essential meds, especially a lot of you who have been trained here in the United States. You are so used to third-generation drugs, all these specialty drugs that we see on the commercials all night long when we're watching TV, right? Forget it. Just throw it out the window because you're not going to have that there. And don't bring it in when you go. Do not bring anything that's not considered an essential drug. WHO essential drug guideline is extremely important to stick to because that, look and see what the Ministry of Health uses, and you need to stick close to that, okay, because you cannot sustain it if you're bringing in tertiary drugs. Mental health illness. This is a picture of a little kid, a Syrian, in a refugee camp um, in, one of the, in the country I work in. He was busily, happily playing. We had a play day for him, and he played with his Legos. And next thing you know, he put together a gun and was shooting to kill. And then we found out his family members were killed in front of him. You can imagine the mental health on this in the post-traumatic stress syndrome that he's going through. And PTSD and depression are prevalent among refugees. Prevalent. Again, if your patients have somatic complaints, you have to be in your differential diagnosis depression. And they might even have already come there with pre-existing conditions, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, all those other things. You have to consider it. In fact, the British Medical Journal research has found that refugees fleeing war are 66% more at risk for schizophrenia and psychosis. Now, some of it is going to be demonic, which I've seen, but a lot of it, it's happened because they have been traumatized over and over and over again. Truth of the matter is, almost everybody that's been affected by emergency will suffer with some type of depression or some type of a mental health illness problem for a while, but eventually they'll get over it, especially if they get the care that they need. Now let's turn it over to you. You're going to be going to a tough place. You need to not just survive. You need to thrive. I love this picture of this poppy growing in the desert with next to this cute little yellow flower. I think it's a dandelion, but... That's dry ground. Somehow they're growing, but I do believe it's because God cares about them. And God cares about you, and he's going to help you to thrive there if you do it right. Because the truth of the matter is, the world is getting to be a pretty rough place. In fact, the UN has warned that we're set to face one and a half disasters a day, 560 a year by the year 2030. You think you got job security ahead of you? You do, okay, but through the climate change and other things that are going on. In fact, we have, there are, in the past two decades, between 350 and 500 medium-sized to major disasters were recorded annually. That's just disasters. That's not even war. That's just like natural disasters. So combine the two, because you can often see the two go hand in hand. Now I want to turn to a slide that's going to be a little bit disconcerting for some of you. Okay, but it's the truth of the matter. Attacks affecting aid workers. You're no longer 
not a target. In fact, more and more aid workers are targeted. And as you can see, in 2021 alone, there were 268 attacks and 141 deaths. If you're going to be going to this situation, you need to understand that you are not immune. You need to understand that you're putting yourself maybe in the line of fire. I'm telling you, when I was in Iraq, I had bullets go in front of my face. I saw people killed in front of my face. I had 100 kgs of bombs blow up cars in the market with hundreds of people killed and body parts flying a mile away and landing on our roofs. Nothing happened to me. I was traumatized. I didn't die, but I knew God wanted me to be there. I knew it. So I'm not saying that's always going to be the protection. We know it from past history of other workers. It's, it's not always going to be the protection. In fact, Kent Brantley, who went to Ebola uh, to help with the Ebola crisis in Liberia, soon found that out. He had very good intentions to go there and help, didn't he? And was killing a lot of people. He ended up getting the disease. He was the first American to return to the United States and to live as a result of the care he got. But we need to prepare ourselves emotionally, culturally, and security-wise before you go. You need to prepare for the worst-case scenario. You have got to understand what you're getting into and why. Okay? If you do not understand that this is something that God has called you to do or that you're well-trained for and believe that you're in the right place at the right time, don't go. It's not for Instagram photos. It's not for Facebook likes, okay? Know the people in the culture you're going to serve. As much as possible, get to know them because that's going to help you in your medical care. Learn a language if you can. If you're going long-term especially, spend the first year just learning the language, especially if you're in a place where the, the emergency is already done and you're just going to work in a refugee camp situation, okay? Identify your security needs your potential health risks, be prepared for them, develop a contingency plan with your organization. Your organization should have a contingency plan already written up for you in case there's any disaster or civil arrest when you're on the ground, and prepare a grab-and-go bag. Do you know what I mean by grab-and-go bag? It's a backpack filled with your essentials in case you've got to run. Okay? It's not easy living in these situations. There's chronic stressors. You're in a living condition. We lived in a compound, like I said, in a mud hut with a grass roof for the most time that I was there. Only the last two years I had a beautiful cinder block house that my husband built for me in South Sudan that I only got to enjoy for a short period of time, which I'll tell you why. There's a heavy, heavy workload. There's security concerns. I can't tell you the number of times we were evacuated. I cannot count the number of times we were evacuated from South Sudan. It has 60-plus years of war. And we were evacuated over and over. We lost everything we owned four times. Four times. Everything we said goodbye to. You might not get any kind of recognition from your organization for all the great work that you're doing. They're like, yeah, but where's the report? Mm, okay. And then uh, management issues. Because especially when you're, if you're working with a mission agency, they're understaffed and so are you. So you're both feeling the stresses at the same time. And then if you're there and you're feeling all these emotions that you don't know what to do with, there's a lot of barriers to getting the help that you need because you're the hero, right? You're there to take care of people. And you're a Christian. All you need to do is pray and read your Bible more. I'm sorry. that I hate that kind of talk. Because we are not immune to struggling with stressors that are going to affect our mental health. Yes, reading your Bible is good. Yes, praying is good. But it sometimes gets so bad that you're going to need to be on medication. I've been on medication because I was depressed. I struggled with PTSD and anxiety. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I am a Christian. I love God. But I was constant stress and I've had multiple traumas in my life and so it just can be a natural outcome. It's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen to you. You need to go with that, okay? And then if you want to get the help, you know what? I'm telling you, in South Sudan there wasn't one single counselor anywhere so if you made me say, oh, I'm just going to go down the block and see my counselor and have a good talk. 
But your agency should go with an agency that has good member care. We had a chaplain. We could call any time, day or night. We could cuss. We could scream. We could yell. He listened to us. He never told anybody. He listened. We felt better after we talked. He prayed for us, and we're like, okay, we can go on now. But he was in, in the military before he started missions, and he's been in Iraq, in Afghanistan, all these places. So helped us a lot to know. He's one of us. So just to give you an idea of what it's like, 80% of aid workers have experienced mental health issues. Okay, nearly one half of them diagnosed with depression. 30% of them returning from conflicts, uh, stressful and dangerous humanitarian components, experience PTSD. I was one of them. And then most agencies, unfortunately, are not prepared to deal with the needs of their staff. Find an agency that is prepared, that has crisis debriefing, that has, will prepare you before you go, while you're on the field, and after you get out. Okay? So as I said, we were in South Sudan. Christmas 2016. We're supposed to go to church. Or is, is it time for us to go? Okay. Supposed to go to church, and oh, it's very quiet. Very, very quiet, and everybody says... You know, there's some talk that there's um, some fighting that's going to happen. The next two days, bullets were everywhere. We were on the ground in three different compounds with kids, some of them six months old. Bullets flying everywhere. People being killed. My husband was in charge of security. You can see him there on the bed. He never did more WhatsApp messages in all his life trying to keep in touch with all the people on the compounds. That's us leaving in our car as I'm looking at my clinic and not knowing if I'm ever going to see it again. And we watched and we saw some dead bodies on the way going to the airfield. Here we are on the plane. I'm smiling. My husband's fried, but we're both happy that we were out alive. Within 20 minutes, Three planes came in the lull of fighting, evacuated all 32 of us. But as we were flying out, we saw the homes of our kids. Our Sudanese kids that we loved were destroyed, and we had no idea if they were dead or alive. No communication. Two days later, we got notice that everything was looted, vandalized. Our high school, which was the best one in the whole area, destroyed. Part of my clinic damaged. We lost everything. But worst off, this man up on the top there, Simone, our security guard whom we loved, died. He was shot in the back as he was fleeing the war. These are the realities of working in complex humanitarian emergencies. And you need to understand that it can happen to you. But... Praise God, our kids are okay. Praise God, the clinic has been repaired and it's up going again. Praise God, people are still getting the need, that, the care that they need, and the work continues. So these are common things that even for those of us working here, we should all know when we have a high job that requires a lot of care, sleep. Get yourself some sleep, please. I suffered from insomnia the whole time I was there. I was on Ambien most of the time. Horrible, horrible medication, but I could not sleep without it. I'm, not, I'm free now. Melatonin is the answer. I tell you, use melatonin. Physical exercise. It was 120 degrees. It's hard to exercise out there, but I forced myself to get out on and do some exercise somehow. Eat healthy. We gave away half of our food, so we didn't really have much food. We were really thin when we were there, but... Try to eat healthy as much as you can. Be flexible. All these things you already know. Nurture your spirituality. Be aware of what you're feeling and why. Find people that you can talk to, a confidant that you can talk to. Remember why you're there and what you're doing it for. And find some kind of satisfaction in life. My husband and I used to love to just go down by the river and look at the birds. It was fun. I loved it. But it really helps you. So member care is really important. How many of you have heard the term member care? It's extremely, extremely important. And your, your organizations you're going to work with should have member care in place. 
And it's a way that helps you before you go, while you're there, after you're out there, every time you come home on home assignment. These are a lot of resources here, so you can get those. Because 80% of missionaries burn out and don't even finish their first term. You need to be cared for, okay? And 46% of missionaries are diagnosed with some kind of psychological issue. Did you know that? It's pretty bad. 87% of them diagnosed with depression. So, stay healthy. Crisis response. You need to be with an organization that is set up to give you critical incident debriefing if anything happens. It is emotional first aid for those who have experienced a traumatic, emotionally upsetting, or stressful experience. Okay? So these are some organizations that do critical debriefing. And I, there's a group downstairs. I already I forgot their name. Valero, Valero or something like that. Yeah. Vallejo, they also offer online counseling if you need it, okay? And this is one of my favorite things, Breathe. How many of you have ever heard of Breathe? Oh, my gosh, it's in Biltersville, Switzerland. It's a 10 days of amazing counseling and a beautiful environment, great food, fun. You have only a half a day where you sit in on sessions. The other half a day is just to go out and have fun. They know that you need to relax. So, and they have Medical care, massage care, counseling, everything that you could want. So I highly recommend doing Breathe. There are some stateside organizations, Med Retreat and HeartStream, that also help people prepare as well as when you're coming back. This is a very good organization. It's called the Antares Foundation. Look for an organization to work with that has these principles in place. Okay, I'm not going to go through them all because we're running short of time, but you need to look for that. And I believe that I already talked about the package of essential drugs. Here's some resources for you that I've used. And I don't know how much time we have left, but are there and I'm sorry? We have 20 minutes. Oh, wow, it went through this fast. Oh, praise God. Now I have, I have time for questions. So I, I hope there's some questions. Yes. Uh, you were talking about maternal health. In regards to, you were mentioning hysterectomies and women using depo, what does the developing world feel about vasectomies, which are so quick and easy? (laughs) (laughs) That is a good question, and I don't have the answer for that, because that is something anybody can do anytime, anywhere. I mean, it's clip, clip, you're done. I would love to see that researched. I think that's a great idea. I'm not sure that it would go over well where we worked or we're working because men want to be virulent. You know, where I live in the Middle East, they have four wives. And um, in Sudan, some of them are married to multiple wives and have 100 kids. So it um, might be a little bit difficult. But in some places, they might, it might go over really well. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions, comments? I was really trying to cut this down because I thought I got so much material here. But... I like to make it interactive as possible. If you have any type of questions at all, don't, no question is stupid. Yes? I feel bad. I came in late, but do you mind sharing just very briefly the medications uh, going back over there? The medications? Oh, this who, this who package of essential not? So what this is, this is, and you don't have to go back no, I'll just go over it briefly. Uh, one of the things that Doctors Without Borders and WHO worked really hard on was developing a handbook of essential medicines. So essential medicines are going to be things that are your simple, simple first-line drugs. And one thing I like about this book, it goes through all like cardiovascular diseases, hypertension, um, the high cholesterol, obesity, all these things, and it, tell, it helps you train your health staff and how to do a, a history and a physical, what to examine for, what are some of the first-line drugs that you should use. So I love this. I think one of the things that I did when I was in Sudan is we developed a 52-week training uh, program for them. Because like I said, I worked with, with people who maybe at the most had a 10th grade education. But they were community health workers where we were at in Upper Eastern Nile State, close to Ethiopia and the border of Sudan. There were no schools. Most of them went to Ethiopia to go to school. They fled as, as refugees and went to Ethiopia. So I developed a training program where we started from the very basics, went from what is medical terminology 
taught them how to do the medical talk, taught them some Latin, what is cardio mean, what does myo mean, what does apathy mean. Oh, cardiomyopathy, oh, disease in the muscle of the heart. Okay, so go ahead and put two and two, because a lot of people wanted us just to dumb them down. Oh, these people don't have enough education. I got a lot of flack from some of my, my workmates. Oh, that's too hard for them. I said, no. These people want to be trained. In fact, I'll give you a story why this was. We had another one of our umpteenth evacuations, and we left all the community health workers in charge of the clinic and all the programs. We had a big program. We, we, treated, we had 27,000 patient visits a year at this health program I was running, which was for leprosy, maternal health, malnutrition, emergency care, and um, just regular outpatient department. When we left, they had no idea how to take care of some of these very difficult things that were coming in. Oh, we also had a rabies program. And they had people coming in with severe lacerations, people coming in seizing from malaria. And they said they had a meeting. They were on strike when when we came back. They were mad. They said, you will never, ever leave us again without training us to care for the people that you tell us to take care of. Never again. They did not like watching their own people die. By the time I left, and I'm hoping it's still going on, they could suture, put in IVs, manage severe malaria, understand how to manage hypertension and other diseases. They were confident. They could take a good history and physical. I'm very proud of my CHWs who can do the work of any I think of a PA or a nurse practitioner. They can deliver babies. We deliver babies. And I'm very proud of them. So anytime you can go in, when when the emergency situation is gone and now you're going into the transition phase, that's the time for you to phase into teaching. That's the time for you to raise up these people that that are underneath you looking to you for guidance. Don't be the doctor. Don't be the nurse there. Be the mentor. Every time I had an interesting case, I said, hey, Peter, hey, Benjamin. These are all my health workers. Come, look at this. Listen to this heart. I want them to hear a murmur. Look at this. I want them to see such and such. So use it as a moment for teaching. Okay? It's really important. Other questions? Comments? So I developed it myself. I think it can be replicated. If I can find it, if you want to contact me, I'll be happy to give it to you because it comes complete with exams, handouts, the whole bit. Yeah. Because they, they had to pass the exam 70% <laughs> or do it again. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions, comments? Yes. I guess I was just a little bit curious. Um, I'm a pediatric resident right now. Um, as far as, like, diagnostic workup, things like that, I feel like we're really dependent on, like, quick lab work imaging, things like that. So I just didn't know what your, like, diagnostic capabilities were kind of in these studies. Okay. And, and it depends where you're at. Where we were in Sudan, oh, we, we had – limited, and that happened over time when Samaritan's Purse rebuilt the district hospital. And a wonderful, amazing doctor took it over, Dr. Attar, very famous guy. So we had some blood work that we could do, x-rays, I believe. But, uh, and I think we were starting to get into HIV. And, uh, but when I first started in Sudan, it's completely good history, physical exam. I'm telling you right now, if you're going to go into these places, if you have been highly trained and you're specializing, please find a way to generalize before and understand. There is a good program, InMed. Have you ever heard of InMed? They have online diseases of poverty as well as an online MPH program. I highly, highly recommend that you do that. There's also um, Equip. 
Equip Ministries Excellent Medical Missionary Intensive for Physicians and Medical Missionary Intensive for Non-Physicians, like nurses, PAs, NPs, and stuff like that. Do it, because if you have been trained in the States, going there is going to really blow your mind. You're going to have to, like, remember how to do a, a, be a generalist. I'm really glad I'm a PA because I was broadly trained. I would have loved to have been a doctor in a lot of cases, but I'm a PA. It really helped me a lot because they really focus on getting 80% of your diagnosis just from a history and physical alone. So really beef up your history. Really beef up your physical exam skills. Check into doing, I think it's one or two weeks for the medical missionary intensive at Equip. And then also maybe doing the online diseases of poverty program from InMed. Stuff like that, yeah. But you got to be a generalist. Yes? You kind of talked about um, how you had to get pulled out of a lot of your locations. And so what did that look like for you, of getting pulled out and then going back in? Oh, it was so depressing. <laughs> what is that, 10 minutes? Thank you. It was depressing. Because um, a lot of times we left and we thought, why are we leaving? This is really stupid. But anyway, we left. Huh? A lot of times it's not our decision. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. It's true. Yep, because we had security levels. So you had like red, yellow, uh, green. So green was okay. Yellow was like, hey, watch out. Red is like, hey, you're out of there. You're out of there. I will give you another story. When we were in South Sudan for the first time, this is, I think, our first year on the field there in 2006, there was a cholera outbreak. Eight people died. I'd never seen cholera before. I was up to my ankles and diarrhea and vomiting, and we didn't have enough IVs, and people wanted us to use tetracycline. We were using doxycycline. They arrested us by gunpoint, the community, AK-47s, put us in prison, and had guns pointed at us. We... Fortunately, the night before, knew something was going on, and we said, hey, we need an emergency evacuation. So it was nighttime when we heard there was rumblings of something happening to us. And so, thankfully, the U.N. sent a plane to evacuate us. Um, That was pretty hairy, but God delivered us. We did get to go back in there for a very brief time, and then another horrible incident happened where they were shooting all around, and we had to leave again. That was the first time we lost everything we owned, and then it just went on from there. It's the life. of I loved it. I love working with these people. We saw thousands come to Christ. We ministered to people in great ways. We saw many people set free from terrible, terrible uh, demonic strongholds. I loved what I did. And now we're in a place where I, I'm kind of bored, but at the same time, I know God has me there too. And, but I'm an adrenaline junkie, you know, um, so what can you do? I think that that's about all. If there's any other questions, then um, I'll see you up here afterwards. Thank you so much. Please uh, fill out an evaluation. Appreciate it.